Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers, and welcome to Bugle issue 4131, sub-episode I. Short, of course, for I need a week off from full immersion in the British election campaign to spiritually fumigate myself and come to think of it from all other news as well. I am Andy Zaltzman, and for your delectation this week, we are raiding the esteemed archives of the Bugle podcast, which has been chronicling the world for posterity since time immemorial, or 2007, I forget, one of the two. There will also be some lies about our voluntary subscribers and a prime offcut from a more recent show, plus a plug for my Soho theatre run. This year's edition of Andy Zaltzman's The Certifiable History. It begins on the 16th of December, running from the 16th to the 21st, then the 27th and 28th and 30th of December, and the 2nd to the 4th of January. Tickets are A, available on the internet, and B, the greatest Christmas present anyone could give and or receive. That plug for that show will be coming right at the start of the show. There it was. Moving on to our raid of the Bugle archives. Here we are in 2019, scuttling towards the end of yet another decade for humanity. This, of course, is nothing new for the Bugle. We've been seeing decades splutter to their end since before you were born, assuming you are under just under 10 years old. The last episode of the previous decade was Bugle 99, and this is what the world sounded like back then. So this is the 99th full edition of the Bugle, the world's longest-running audio newspaper of a your world. So long-running, in fact, that I can no longer say those words without <laughs> slightly slurring like Boris Yeltsin. Who would have thought, John, 20 years yeah. ago that we'd be sitting here now recording the 99th Bugle? Yeah, it definitely wouldn't be. Yeah. We wouldn't have been able to process having the capacity to yeah. do that technologically. That's right. Really. Also, we I was 12. Yeah. At the time, Andy, I didn't know you. No, we'd never met, wouldn't meet for uh, eight or ten years, I guess. Also, at that point in my life, I was definitely considering a career as a footballer, not a comedian. Right. When I say considering, <laughs> I mean fantasising about. <laughs> Sounds like you still are. <laughs> OK, that is technically true. You're just using The Daily Show as a stepping stone to becoming just a whatever it takes. football player. Whatever it takes, Andy. So this is a historic bugle for a number of reasons, of course. It's the last ever two-digit bugle. The last bugle wow. to take place in a year containing wow. consecutive zeros for oh, at least boy. the next 90 years and two weeks. <laughs> the only ever bugle that will be recorded in the week of the 218th anniversary of the Bill of Rights becoming part of US law. It's or history. on the 45th birthday of wrestling legend Stone Cold Steve Austin. <laughs> also the first ever bugle whose number sounds like a conversation in a Berlin cafe in which an English-speaking tourist tries to order a round of hot beverages for an Oxford boat race crew in their cocks but is refused. 99! <laughs> also the first... Oh, oh, that's no way to say goodbye to double digits. <laughs> also the first bugle to contain either the word Zamponga or, <laughs> or indeed any reference to any form of Italian bagpipe variants. <laughs> that's what the Zamponga is. I like to think this is an educational uh, podcast. I keep thinking that. <laughs> uh, or to contain reference to the chemical element hafnium the cheeky little tetravalent transition metal with an atomic number of 72, used in the production of control rods for nuclear reactors, which was, of course, named after the Cleveland Indians baseball player Travis Hafner. <laughs> Sorry, I've drifted away again. As always, some sections of Bugle going straight in the bin. This week, the first in a series of free Bugle Christmas threats. Intimidate friend and foe alike with our seasonal provocation, scientifically proven to be 50% more disquieting than the average threat. And here is number one threat... 
I will summon the vengeful furies of the underworld to pursue you during your every waking moment until the prospect of death seems a blessed relief from the abominable strafing of those unconquerable beasts who will stop at naught until they taste your warm blood on their cornflakes of hatred, whose very existence is concerned with nothing but your total destruction, who will not rest their vengeful limbs until you have been cast into a chasm of nothingness if you don't stop singing those carols. Come on, shoe, clear off, and you're not getting a mince pie. Also in the bin, does Britain have a future in the week in which London has ground to a halt two to two centimetres of snow and in which 19 million people watch the final of the amateur karaoke competition The X Factor? We ask, was the sacrifice our forefathers made in two world wars really worth the effort? So I think it's fair to say this decade has not had a complete monopoly on ridiculous behaviour. Another thing The Bugle is one of the most experienced podcasts in the universe at is covering British general elections. Our run of three unbroken general elections covered is the envy of newer podcasts such as Alternative History Pod, What If Teddy Roosevelt Had Been Madonna, Don't Put That In There, that's a new kitchen safety show in case you were wondering, and the new show from the Audio Coma Network for deliberately boring podcasts that help their listeners get to sleep. Uh, this show is uh, one in which fans of the influential rock legends The Who describe their backup home power devices, a show entitled Talking About My Generator. There's a niche for everything in this industry. The first general election the Bugle covered was in 2010, when 13 years of Labour government spluttered and fludged to an end. Top story this week, anarchy for the UK. <laughs> it's coming sometime and maybe I give a wrong time stop a traffic line. Your future dream is a shopping scheme, cos I wanna be anarchy. <laughs> <clears throat> You've been waiting a long time to get that one out of your, oh boy. your bag, John. That felt better out than in. That was your rescue club. Well, well, Andy, you woke up in a different Britain than the one you fell asleep in. You're like Dorothy waking up and realising that she's actually still in Kansas, it's just that Kansas has swung frighteningly far to the right. <laughs> that's not a scarecrow, Dorothy, that's a homeless man who now has no welfare state to help him. <laughs> now click your heels together three times and say, I wish I'd voted yesterday. <laughs> so... What is the atmosphere over there, Andy? Well, John, just just total panic, as I suggested at the top of the show. We just, you know, we're just waiting for someone to take control of this country. As uh, uh, I'm sure our bugle listeners know, it's ter- it was a hung parliament yesterday's uh-huh. uh, elections. We're recording on Friday at the moment. It's still all up in the air. As we're recording, David Cameron is making a speech in which I believe he's declaring that he has the Queen hostage in the boot of his car and he's going to kill her unless we let let him be Prime Minister. Well, but Britain is currently without a government bugler. And I actually think this is really a, a huge opportunity, a big chance for the Queen. If yeah. she drives around today, Andy, firing a f- machine gun into the air, I think she could have the dictatorship that I know she's been dreaming about since she was 12. Yep. Uh, interesting that actually that this should have fallen uh, for, on Bugle 114 because 114 is the number of times David Cameron has had practiced his uh, off-the-cuff acceptance speech. Uh, he's now having to hastily rewrite. Uh, also, the number of times Gordon Brown has dreamt he was born a hundred years earlier and in Russia. Uh, ironically, interesting. Also, the A114 in Germany is a road leading to central Berlin, and with a hung parliament, the right-wing press have been telling us that we might as well have let Hitler win, take over, and divert the British A114 in northeast London straight to the Reichstag. Um, so it, it's been it's kind of amazing because the Labour Party. Uh, lost the election. Uh, the Conservatives 
also lost the election, and the Liberal mm-hmm. Democrats, well, they lost the election really quite badly. They really lost the election. And uh, the assorted Celts and nutcases, they've also lost the election. So, <laughs> now with everyone having lost the election, we're now down to a squabble about who has lost it the least. Uh, and uh, the Conservatives had uh, the most votes and seats. But they don't. N- n- this is an argument over who has the mandate. The government right. clearly ended up with um, uh, under 30% of the vote from a, a 65% turnout, um, 255 seats. They need uh, 326 for an overall majority. The Tories um, uh, on 302 as we speak. Uh, Cameron is now saying, this is breaking news on the Bugle. Cameron is now saying he, he does subscribe to the Bugle but hasn't listened to it for a few weeks because he's been busy. <laughs> that's, now flat, that's, that's come through from Reuters. Wow. But he's saying he's going to try and form a minority government and talk to the other parties. Now, I mean, this, this could be a momentous day for British politics, Sean. This could be the day that British politics grows the f*** up. Uh, and mm, it could be. <laughs> it Andy. could be. I think, Andy, the problem there is that you're presupposing an engaged electorate and right. politicians with the capacity for shame, <laughs> and that's uh, that's ludicrous. But uh, I mean, it all yesterday it was an incredible day. It was awesome going to vote. You know, I, I, I love the smell of democracy in the morning. Yeah. Um, surprisingly similar to a dairy farm, in fact, in the morning. <laughs> the smell of British democracy also sounds quite like one too, and has a lot of people milking it for all they can. And an unholy mess is inevitably left behind. It's truly uncanny, John. Um, but there is, as you know, nothing better in this life than writing the letter X in a box next to mm-hmm. the name of someone you've never heard of. Yep. That is what democracy is all about, John. So, no government as it stands. But uh, to be honest, Andy, I don't think this result has particularly surprised anyone. Gordon Brown actually released a statement saying that he would take full responsibility for the election defeat a day before the polls even <laughs> opened. <laughs> I'm not questioning his facts there, Andy. I'm just questioning his timing. He is a regular Henry V, that man, isn't he? <laughs> Men, gather round. I just want you troops to know that when Agincourt is a total catastrophe, I mean a complete massacre, that it is on me. OK? My bad. I think that's it. Once more into the breach, to your certain deaths, everybody. Let's get this thing over with. Well, it's like Churchill in the first draft of his uh, famous We Will Fight Them on the Beaches, We Will Fight Them in the Hills uh, little skit. Um, quite different, because <laughs> he wasn't very confident. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said, uh, we will fight them on the beaches, we will fight them in the hills, but frankly, I don't really fancy our chances. The Germans are looking pretty strong at the moment, and to be honest, they probably deserve to win. They've certainly been the better team over the course of the war so far, and uh, we can have no complaints, really, so uh, best of luck to uh, Adolf and his team. They've thoroughly merited this victory. But uh, luckily, uh, someone got to him and said, right, come on, come out fighting, big win. And he did, but um, but we've had a touch of the uh, uh, a touch of uh, excitement in this d- democracy that uh, a number of postal votes have gone missing, um, and right. we've ended up with hun- hundreds of people being locked out um, uh, as the polls closed at ten o'clock last night because uh, there were huge queues because I think people had committed the mistake of living in a massively incompetently run area, right? Um, and um, and so <laughs> there was genuine sort of it almost looked like it was about to break down into violence. We had a real touch of the sort of Afghan election experience. So it's, nice. and we're kind of sharing democracy around the world, and, and it's, it's shown that it's, it's give and take, really. But the people of Britain have spoken, John. They spoke they spoke with one voice, and what they said was... Oh. 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 <laughs> now all three parties start jockeying for alliances like they're on a jungle reality show all <laughs> about to eat a jar of cockroaches. <laughs> and in fact, that process might have even more dignity than the one they're about to embark on. <laughs> it's also three people competing for a job that if any one of them stopped to think about it for a second, would realise they might not actually want. 
Britain's budget deficit is set to be even bigger than Greece's this year, and they are on the verge of a bankrupt anarchy. <laughs> this might actually turn into an argument of a, you have it. No, 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 you have it. Oh, well, come on, you won most seats. It's yours. Oh, I won't hear it, Prime Minister. Ah, please don't call <laughs> me that. <laughs> yeah, because usually at elections you get people coming out and claiming victory, but um, I think they looked at the economy and basically everyone was saying, no, it's not looking good, uh, and just desperately trying to claim defeat. And uh, I think Cameron's failure to win this election outright must go down as one of the most spectacular electoral bloopers in our history. His Labour, John, was staring down the barrel, but more than that, they had pointed the barrel at their own face and written a note saying sorry to everyone they've let down and then placed the Conservatives' finger on the trigger. So quite how it went wrong is, is, is frankly baffling, particularly when they had a huge support from the, the press, the Conservatives, um, uh, and this sort of fed into the anti-Lib Dem swing, I think, in the last few days, the worries that, about the hung Parliament, a lot of the newspapers had said... Um, uh, these concerns that were vomited out by the by the Tory press onto the nation's cornflakes about how basically looking at Greece now it's basically a computer simulation of what Britain will be like if there's a hung parliament, just flames, riots, 100,000 years of British civilization conflagrated in one fell swoop of electoral indecision, and about how if there's a hung parliament, it would probably vote to ban all medical advances made since 1785 uh, and make all women wear concrete burkas. So, I mean, that, that, was, that was the level of scaremongering going on. And uh, the Conservatives, uh, if they do form the, the government, which now seems likely a minority government, they will be the least popular incoming government since the 1920s. But I think that these low expectations could really help, John, because uh, people have had enough of being let down by their politicians. They're sick to death of it, quite literally in some cases due to NHS underfunding. But you can only let people down if they expect you to be any good in the first place. And the way this uh, election has gone shows that people don't expect anyone to be any good anymore. And expectations will be so low that all the Conservatives will need to do is stop the Queen being kidnapped by the Chinese and everyone will think they've done better than expected. <laughs> so this could actually work, work for them. There were, there, were, uh, there were also, of course, the traditional voting irregularities to add a bit of spice to the day. Uh, you mentioned the uh, long lines and people being shut out. Apparently, also this time, a 15-month-old baby was sent a polling card, <laughs> yeah. giving him the option to vote. His name is uh, Alexander McConnell from Southwold, and he received the card in the post along with the cards for his parents. And everyone seems to have had a bit of a laugh about this, Sandy, about how funny it is that this baby was given the opportunity to vote, but that baby should have got off his ill-formed arse <laughs> and actually voted. Does he know how many people died so that he could be mistakenly sent that card? <laughs> I bet he doesn't, because he hasn't even bothered to develop his brain to the point where he can even process that as a potential piece of information. And is that not typical of the apathy endemic in the young voter at the moment? <laughs> they should have carried him into the voting booth and left him there until he'd made up his mind or at least eaten the ballot paper. 2010 there, an election that, as we look back at it now, has a fuck of a lot to answer for. Hey Chris, uh, have we got anything off the cutting room floor from recent episodes we can pad this out with? Not now, Andy. Great. Who's in it? I said I said no. I'm trying to watch Match of the Day. Super. Uh, crank it up. Oh, fuck's sake. Here's something... Um... I mean, the British establishment has been rocked to its core in multiple ways this week. Um, strictly come dancing... Uh, which I, I believe has a royal charter as a TV show, um, uh, had its first ever same-sex routine, and it sparked uh, almost 200 complaints to the BBC. <laughs> Some viewers apparently said they would no longer watch the show if same-sex pairings became a regular feature. Now, I no longer watch the show <laughs> because I never watched the show in the first place. 
But that's a strange tipping point. Very strange. Isn't it? Rather than the fact that it's tediously repetitive and formulaic garbage. The, the fact that you know, same, a same-sex dance could affect your enjoyment of a show... Yeah. It seems... It's almost as if it's not really about the dancing acting. Oh, right, OK. It's almost oh. as if that... And, I mean, the it's resulted in, I think, a couple of hundred complaints coming into the BBC from, let's face it, arseholes. And what I would say to these people is... Getting pe- arseholes to complain to the BBC is my job. Back <laughs> off, gay dancers. This is my turf. Also, I mean, complaints to the BBC is basically the only effective way of getting anything done in this country. <laughs> One complaint to the BBC basically causes the whole organisation to go into lockdown. <laughs> Whereas a million people complaining on the streets of London recently barely got 20 seconds on the... I guess it's Stalin who said... <laughs> One complaint can stop the BBC. Uh, a million complaints is just a statistic. <laughs> I mean, I thought it was a, quite a nice moment. Uh, just, um, you know, it's a bastion of the British establishment and having same-sex pairings dancing feels like a measure of social pro- social progress. But then uh, I am, as my mother described me, a leftist subversive. So... <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Those are strange middle names. <laughs> General elections, of course, are not the only elections in town, not in this town anyway, because back in Bugle 27, we reported on the election for London Mayor, featuring a man with whom we have all become harrowingly more familiar. British politics now, and Prime Minister Gordon Brown has been hammered and mauled at the ballot box like a teenage binge drinker on a bad night out. On the minus side, less than 10% of potential voters voted for the uh, Labour Party. On the plus side, he could say that with a 35% turnout in the local elections, 75% of potential voters in all didn't vote against him. So once again, those key floating voters are going to be crucial, John. Hold hold on a second. What? Was that a 110% turnout? No, I'm including the 10% that actually voted for Labour, plus the the 65% who love democracy so much they don't want to risk getting it wrong by writing an X in the wrong box. That's the thing. I mean, is there not the big story from the night that, yet again, the landslide winner was the concept of people not giving a shit about things? <laughs> it's always going to be the way, John, though. Yeah. That's what we fought the wars for. We fought wars so that we had the right not to give a shit about stuff. Yeah, true, true. So the floating voters are going to make and by floating, of course, I do mean bobbing face down on a reservoir of disillusionment. Gordon Brown seems to be in some trouble, Andy, as his unpopularity rises like a sunflower of doom. Asked whether he had a presentational problem and was less able to give a human answer to a question than his predecessor, Tony Blair, he said, My job is to work every day on behalf of the people of this country. So, yes, (laughs) a simple yes. Blair did have that uncanny quality of giving you bad news in a way that a friend would, albeit a friend who was directly responsible for the bad news in question. In the same interview, uh, Gordon Brown was asked by the journalist what the first thing he thought of in the morning was when he woke up that day, and he said it was a housing crisis and how to get first-time buyers onto the ladder. The first thing. Before thinking, where am I? Or I don't want to be awake yet. Or if someone doesn't get me a cup of coffee in the next two minutes, I'm going to kill the first thing that moves. No, not that. The housing crisis. And the horrendous thing is, that could even be true. I wouldn't put it past him thinking that. I'm sure his wife, during a romantic dinner, has found herself saying, what are you thinking, Gordon? Only for him to reply, oh, whether low interest rates are genuinely in the long-term fiscal interest of this country. (laughs) He's a serious man, Andy. And for some inexplicable reason, we don't want that. We certainly don't. He's also been slightly left in the position 
of the guy who would have had to take charge on the Titanic had Captain Smith said, my God, you were right, it is an iceberg. I could have sworn it was only a chocolate wrapper. My mistake. Is that the time? Oh dear, I must be off now. Uh, well, you've always been an ambitious lad. You take the reins. Right, get my chopper. I'm out of here. The result of the London mayoral election is not quite out as we record, but it does seem that Ken Livingston, the incumbent mayor, could well lose to joke candidate Boris Johnson, raising the possibility that he will do a Mugabe and <laughs> refuse to announce the result for weeks uh, before eventually saying, yeah, we're going to have to have a recount. Uh, who knows if that will happen? All I can say for sure, John, is that at this very moment there's a big Chinese ship moored on the Thames outside City Hall in London and there's a courier waiting in reception saying, no, it's a special delivery, Mr Livingston has to sign for it himself. It does seem that London, a major international city, is about to vote for comedy rather than competence and have what... I mean, the rest of the world really do have something to look forward to in Johnson. That's the worst thing. I, I'm not sure I can entirely disagree with this. I mean... <laughs> It's going to be awful. It's going to be absolutely awful, but it's going to be funny. The whole thing is a bit like the plot of a low-budget comedy film, though. It's like the greatest ever example of a drunken dare going much better than expected. Basically, the plot is man bets friend he can't become mayor of London. Friend takes bet whilst hammered. Man says, there's no way you'll win. You're an obvious tit. Friend says, good point, but let's have a laugh anyway. Friend ends up winning by default. Asks, asks man, what do I do now? Man says, dunno, mate, just wing it. Friend says, yeah, good call. How badly could it possibly go? Leaving it open for a hilarious sequel. And finally, sport now. And the Bugle has, of course, always been at the forefront of reporting, if you will, reporting on the events that other media outlets fear to cover. Over ten years ago in Bugle 61, we were proud to be exclusive media rights holders for the World Overreaction Championships, an event that now simply happens every day, everywhere, all the time. Sports news now, and there's been violence at a tennis match. Hooliganism is back, John. Novak Djokovic fans clashed with Amadelic fans at the Australian <laughs> Open. I think it's time to segregate tennis fans. You know, if the Djokovic's and the Delic's can't, can't live in harmony, they should be at opposite ends of the court. I'm just relieved that the Dokic Ultras and the Wozniacki crew didn't flare up during the women's third round match this morning. <laughs> I mean, over tennis, John, what, what could possibly possess these people to get violent over tennis? Well, perhaps it's because Djokovic, the world number three and a big fan of the bugle, or at least he would be if he could be <laughs> bothered to listen to it. Uh, Djokovic is Serbian, and Delic, although now American, was born Bosnian. So I guess it's starting to fit together a bit with a little bit of historical context. I guess it shows how far Serbia and Bosnia have come, though, over the last 15 years, that now that they're just throwing chairs at each other at a tennis tournament and not committing human rights atrocities against each other. <laughs> so it shows how far we've come. Well, that's it from the archives for this week's sub-episode. We'll be back with a full pre-election bugle next week. And finally, here are some lies about our voluntary subscribers, thanks to everyone who has contributed to the continuing independence and advert freeness of the bugle. Book your Soho Theatre tickets now. Lies! Let's have some lies! Music, please. Melanie Cohen thinks ice hockey pucks should be made of licorice and that every time a player scores a goal, they should be allowed to eat it. She acknowledges this may give an unfair advantage to the licorice-obsessed Sweden, but she sticks by it as a plan nonetheless. 
Gwyn Morrissey simply cannot understand why, in slalom skiing, the participants don't simply have curved skis, the left one curving in the opposite direction to the right one, so all you would have to do to manoeuvre your way down the course would be to lift up one leg, then the other, at the appropriate moments. Peter W. believes it is one of the great disappointments of modern life that we don't have weird rituals like people used to make up for fun in the olden days. He has started to try to revive this great tradition by hurling grandfather clocks off a cliff at midnight on the first day of each month in symbolic defiance of the passage of time. Martin Schmeying uh, heard tell of this and jumped aboard that ritualo-symbolistic bandwagon. Every morning, Martin now burns a page of newspaper and a bit of an encyclopedia, then wafts the smoke around with a fan to earn the goodwill of whatever malevolent cosmic force controls the quality of Wi-Fi signals in public places. Scott Manson did an unauthorised home PhD dissertation in which he discovered that the vast majority of frogs, up to 96% of them, don't actually know whether they are frogs or toads, and, more to the point, simply don't really care one way or the other. They don't live their amphibious lives by labels, says Scott, and I respect that. Tomasz Morozewski has a couple of friends who are strong believers in nominative determinism, Understandably so, because they're called Leaf Brewer and Nora Bone, and are respectively a professional tea taster and a cannibal. Michael and Nicole Kelly think we might all be a little bit more tolerant of immigrants if every ten years everyone in the world was forced to migrate to somewhere else for the next ten years, just to see what it's like. They admit they have not got as far as the logistics or the costings, but they also reckon that it would give international sport a long overdue shake-up. Austin Yule, Joseph Hickey and Harry Sims all separately entered a competition to come up with new theories covering the mysterious disappearance of everyone on board the ship the Marie Celeste in 1872. Austin Yule's theory is that a game of dolphin polo between the people on board descended into a fight between the two teams, the polo dolphins, and a school of nearby sharks who'd been betting on the outcome. Joseph Hickey's theory was that the ten people on board were pecked off by giant space pterodactyls before the creatures flew back to the planet Saurus, whence came all the dinosaurs, of course. In fact, the supposed asteroid that wiped them out was in fact a spaceship taking them home, but that is a different story. Harry Sims's Marie Celeste theory was that the crew discovered a magical undersea kingdom, spent a bit of time there, fell in love with the locals and just settled in, really. They really liked the way of life there once they'd got used to it being a little bit soggy. Great welfare systems and terrific sushi. All three of those people received highly commended certificates in that competition. Well done, them. And finally, a Volonto subscriber known only as Lord Horny Spitvalve claims that on an archaeology course in Crete, he discovered evidence that Pacify, the mythological queen who famously, allegedly, forniculated with a bull to produce the Minotaur, also had a bit of a pachyderm thing going on and had carnalitous infranglements with the largest land mammal available. Again, Pacify became pregnant with a hybrid human-animal embryonid, but, unlike the Minotaur, it was never ever mentioned in the myths, or indeed anywhere else. It was very much the elephant in the womb. I'm done. Back next week. Bye. Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss line bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you, you, you must be so excited. Listen now.